we're typically born and raised in this type of a culture to feel like we need to have a solid, static, unmoving, unchanging answer to life. And I think that's what's hindered me the most in the past is feeling like, oh, no, 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 I figured this out years ago. I don't need to learn any more about that topic or how to move or how to meditate. I've already figured that out. And you, anyone in the martial arts will know that the, the sensei or the master would say, you are, you are never on that plateau. You've never perfected that punch. You've never perfected the kick. You're always learning, even if you've been doing it your entire life. Even the sensei, the, the master and a guru and a sage would say the same thing. That this is when you hear like the, the wise person knows that they do not know. It's when somebody says that they do know that they've just reflected or in a sense kind of projected their ignorance in that one sentence. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul speaks with Ben Joseph Stewart. Ben is a conscious filmmaker and musician with a mission to inspire and uplift the audience. After living with indigenous peoples in remote locations around the world and immersing himself deeply into the indigenous culture and ceremony, Ben shares his thread of experience through the evolving medium of film, including the hit TV series Psychedelica on Gaia.com. Coming in 2019 is his new show, Limitless. So Ben Stewart, my God, what a pleasure to spend time with you and share you with the Living 4D podcast audience. I'm super excited to have you here. So welcome, Ben. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. Man, it's uh, it's an honor. I've been uh, I've been quite onto your work for quite some time. So uh, it's just kind of wild how we um, found out about one another, and I'm really glad to be here uh, speaking to your audience. Yes, and um, I wanted to tell the story. It's uh, Pete Evans has done some documentaries with you, and he reached out to me after I did an interview on his podcast asking me if I'd be interested in being part of his new documentary, which I was very much interested in. He just happened to mention the producer of the documentary is Ben Stewart, and I almost fell out of my chair, and I went, oh, my God. I wrote him back right away and said, can you put me in touch with Ben Stewart? I absolutely love his work. And right at that time, I had just finished watching your Psychedelica series, which I thought was hands down the best uh, – documentary presentation on psychedelics out there. I've seen countless numbers of them because it's a very important topic to me mm -hmm. as a medicine man and spirit guide. So he put me in contact with you and I was so excited to make contact with you. I felt like uh, Santa Claus had just delivered the gift of all time. And then, and then we had the joy of, uh, first of all, I had no idea you'd been following my work. So that was quite a surprise. And then second of all, we had the pleasure of getting together, hanging out for a day, and I think we've, we visited in person one or two times, right? It, it was one time, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, it was out at your amazing place out there south of L.A. And, uh, yeah. it was, Heaven House, yeah. It, it was amazing. Yeah, and then we've been corresponding by email, and we've had a, a Skype session or two because uh, I think we're uh, long-lost soul brothers, so I'm <laughs> – I'm so pumped, uh, and and as I said, uh, I love 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 your work. Just just right now, while it's on my mind, Ben, could you go ahead and share for the audience the different uh, 
documentaries and video programs that you've produced that are available on Gaia or Netflix or all over the place? Sure, sure. Yeah. So as of right now, everything that I've done is up on Gaia. It's all been licensed by Gaia. Um, and Psychedelica was actually like, um, you know, it's a Gaia production as while I was working there. So, so yeah, the, the first film I made was back in 2007, 2008, and it was called Esoteric Agenda. I love it. Yeah, just as a preface for everybody else, um, if these are free online as well, the first three that I'm going to mention are also free online on YouTube. Um, basically, this was when it just started hitting me that we're living in a world far different than we're told, and I decided I need to make this film. But I'd never made a film before, nor had I ever made a demo reel or even played around with editing software. So this was one of those moments where I was really just kind of guided by the hand of some, you know, otherworldly kind of force. I, I didn't question it. I just started – I asked my brother for a crash course in editing. I got a laptop, cracked software, and took just a bunch of B-roll from anywhere I could find it and started throwing it together and making this film, Esoteric Agenda. As soon as I was done with that, I think this was before YouTube. It was up on Google Videos, and there was – couple million views uh, within like a couple months. And That's I, amazing. Yeah, and I, I honestly, this was before going viral really dawned on me how it could happen. I thought, oh, I send it to 10 friends. There should be 10 views on it. Not realizing that friends share with friends, share with friends, and it just kind of exponentially grows. So by that point, people were, you know, uh, you know, on both sides, you can imagine people were loving the film. They were also hating the film because there was a lot of topics in there that, that challenges people's most, most, uh, cherished beliefs. So what I did was, uh, you know, they, they said, you know, when, when are you going to make another one? So I instantly started working on the next one, which was Chimatica. And that one came out in 2009. I love it. Yeah, so I worked on that one. Then the next one was uh, Ungrip, and that was – I was following around uh, a sovereign. I guess you could call him that. He doesn't really title himself that way, but he's up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He basically removed himself from all of the, the corporate documents like birth certificates and driver's licenses and you know all those types of things with the crown. And he was living self-sufficiently, built his own house with his family, grows his own food. Just an incredible man, um, really, truly from the heart, which is what spoke to me the most. So I made a film about him called Ungrip. And those are my first three films. I put them all up online for free. You can still find them now. And then David Icke, for any of you who uh, don't know who David Icke is, uh, he was probably one of the first conspiracy theorists that I came uh, came across Excellent, you know, work. Uh, it, he's most popular for, you know, the, the um, basically reptilian shapeshifters, the, the belief that there are – and, you know, I, I've come to the point where I don't believe anything is ridiculous or out of the question anymore. No, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But David Icke, he was starting this channel called The People's Voice and he, through a friend, because I had met him at Wembley, he asked me if I wanted to make a series. So I, I made four pilot episodes of a series called Waking Infinity. And that became my baby. You know, the soundtrack work on it, um, the, the topics is about art and consciousness. So Waking Infinity can only be found on Gaia. And there's four episodes. And I'm definitely going to be making more here in the near future. Um, but then as soon as that happened, 
Gaia asked me if I wanted to come and be a producer. I said yes as soon as I got there. Um, connected with them. They realized that I, I was in the plant medicine world very heavily, had been going down to the Amazon and across the world, uh, experiencing plant medicines in various forms and different traditions. And so they asked if I would like to make a film on psychedelics. And I said, yes, absolutely. Um, and I was a little bit curious, you know, okay, this is my first corporate job when it comes to uh, – when it comes to, I was in the military, but this is like different, you know, obviously the creative corporate job is quite a bit different. So at that point, I was really curious as to whether they were going to be guiding me into what to say and what kind of topics I can get into and can't get into. And they really didn't put any words in my mouth. And the only things that they told me I couldn't put in there were things that their legal team came back and said, uh, we don't know if we can actually mention that you know, without some kind of recourse, let's just leave it out. So they, they weren't tampering with the message. They just let me say what I wanted to say. So I just said, okay, I'm going to town. And I put in the type of heart and soul that I usually try into Well, that I do into all of my films, all of my music, everything else. So, um, so that was pretty much it. And then that leads us to, um, Pete Evans, Pete Evans saw psychedelica, really enjoyed it connected with me about working on a follow-up film called Awaken. And he had just uh, interviewed you for his podcast and he was blown away. So he wanted to connect us to ensure that you are in this film. And on my side, you know, you gave your part of the story for me. I'd been following you for years because I'd been into natural movement and different types of mobility training. And I came across your work and realized it was far more than just that physical aspect of it. It was going into the psychological and the spiritual and there was so much more to it. And I was like, all right, here is a man that I need to get deeper into. So I dug into all your work and then all of a sudden Pete, you know, connects us on that email. And then I realized that you were, uh, you, you had really liked the heart and soul put into psychedelica. So I was like, okay, this, this has to, this has to work out. And honestly, dude, it's been an honor knowing you in the short amount of time we've been connecting and speaking with one another. I feel like I've known you for quite a long time. Yeah, that's why I say I think we're long lost soul brothers. It's funny you were studying my work while I was studying yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes, I guess. Now, the only one of the documentaries that you mentioned that I haven't seen, and I liked Ungrip, by the way, I think it's a great one for people to see, especially, you know, with <clears throat> the issues of the world and, and, and to let people know that they're that we can actually live independent of the state and the federal government mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that there's a lot of options for us. And as, as he was honest about in, in the documentary, it is hard work. It's, it's no easy walk. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I really love, I love that documentary. I love the honesty of it, but I love seeing how inventive and creative he was and how supportive his wife was. And I really, think that was great. But the one I haven't seen is the Infinity one. Can you give me the title of that one again? Yeah, it's called Waking Infinity. Waking and Infinity. Yeah. yeah, and these are four 30-minute episodes. Okay, and great. And so uh, just a tiny bit of background on that. Um, my, my now wife, Barbara, uh, and I, w we had just literally started hanging out. We were road tripping across the country. We decided to go to Burning Man together. So we go to Burning Man, which is where we started dating. And um, as we as we pull up, 
um, we couldn't find our camp. So we just kind of snuck into another camp and set up our tent. And then the very next morning, this guy was sitting outside of his tent pointing at me and staring. And I was like, oh, shit, he's going to kick us out. And he walks up. He was like, you're Ben Stewart. You made Chimatica. And I was like, that's right. And he was like, we met in Toronto. And uh, like the only reason I knew this dude is because after a talk I gave in Toronto, he came up to me and he was like, hey, man, really good talk. Can you give me a ride home? And I was and I was like, yes, nobody ever has the balls to do that, you know, to the talent. So I'm just like, absolutely. And that's the only way I would have remembered him. And he's the guy in episode one. His name is Michael Petrakis. Very well spoken, very deeply connected. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to make an episode on this guy. And he mentions in part of that, he's like, you know, the humbling of the ego, asking ourselves, you know, even who who am I asking that question humbles the ego so much that, you know, if I have, if I can admit that I'm not even really sure who I truly am, then it opens up the question and it opens us up in such a way that it, it invites infinity in. And I thought that was like, Oh man, that's amazing. So I, I just, for some reason was riding my bike around burning man uh, early in the morning one time. And I just, that name waking infinity came to me. So that's uh, that's the premise of that whole show is basically about the the unlimited power of the question mark, posing the question and staying open because the beginning of the word question is quest. It's what is what compels us to seek, to learn more and to and to move on. And the more we answer things and think that we have some kind of static, permanent answer to something that's a very temporary question, the more we box ourselves in. So I just thought that was a really nice title for that. And that's the premise of the whole show, Art and Consciousness. Well, I'm excited because now I have uh, four 30-minute episodes to uh, sink my heart and soul <laughs> into at night. Hey, it's, it's, it's very clear from watching your films and spending time with you that your life path has included a lot of study and authentic experiences of a wide variety of, of what most people would refer to as the spiritual path. So, Ben, can you share an overview of your path? And as you respond, can you include what inspires you to do the work that you do today and what has ultimately become meaningful in your life? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so let's well, let's start with what inspires me. Um, before I ever got into film, music was my first real love. Actually, before that was sports, so movement was uh, a big part of that. But the first thing I really went deeply into was music. I was a professional musician for eleven years, um, touring around the country, um, doing some really good gigs. But what I learned the most from that is you know, I never, I was never the type, I was the front man, I was the singer, you know, and I never had any butterflies, I never had any like nervousness about getting up in front of people. I never had that issue. And I always felt that there was something very beautiful about that. I always got, I, I take that back, I always got butterflies in a very excited way, but not in a nervous, oh my God, I'm going to flop type of way. So music was always the number one thing that I've always been um, most moved by because of that ability for music to move people. Um, yeah. when, when, uh, whenever I was up on stage and the band, we just locked in and we were in the flow and we were doing things that even we 
didn't believe that we could do. That's when I started realizing that magic is a very real thing. It's just there's Hollywood you know, description of magic, which you're, you're meant to be like, oh, well, that's just the movies. And then there's this other kind of synchronistic, uh, kind of magic that you feel at Burning Man. You feel on stage when everybody in the room, you, the band, uh, the sound guys, uh, the lighting guys, the whole audience, we're all experiencing something that's bigger than any of us combined. Like it, we wouldn't, as the band, we wouldn't be complete without the audience. You know, they, they and us wouldn't be complete without the sound guys and the lighting and the people at the door. Everybody, in a sense, came together for this large, very powerful uh, experience that moves you. And there's no proving that has to be a part of that. So here's, here's how I'd answer that. What inspires me to do the work I do is realizing how it moves people. And I've tried de- several different ways of doing that, like in documentaries – I'm really, really keen on the soundtrack and like making sure that the experience feels right as you're getting information. And also that my voice is coming from a very uh, confident place, a very calm and confident place that uh, a friend of mine, Foster Gamble, as he was working on the Thrive Movement, he was, you know, speaking about some pretty conspiracy oriented stuff. And his, his wife, Kimberly, was helping him like, hey, listen, if you come from the place from within uh, as you're confident, um, like, you know, come from the place not angry about what's happening but confident in the way through all of this mess, then the audience will pick up on the fact that you as the authority, the person speaking to them uh, – are confident that there there are solutions and they're simple to engage with once you do so. So for me, I realized that when it comes to films, I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody. And every now and then there, there will be tiny little details that are overturned or realized are, you know, like maybe in, in the greater context, you know, have less efficacy. But for me, it was, it was less about proving details to people and more about moving people to realize that there's so much more about this world, the outer world, and our own inner world and our experience than we give it credit for. And that when we start tapping into that uh, that unknown, um, then that's when real magic starts to happen. And for me, so that's what inspires me, getting before people you, in touch with magic. Oh, I was just going to say, before you move forward, I, I just wanted to share that as you were describing your experience as a musician – I thought totally Bohemian Rhapsody. Have you seen that movie yet? I haven't seen the movie, but I have seen the trailer. It looks incredible. It's mind-blowingly good. That guy's got to win an Oscar for his lead role. Um, hmm. I mean, he plays he plays the the lead singer of Queen. Um, I'm brain farting on it. Freddie, Freddie Mercury. Mercury. Yeah, he plays him so well that you really think it's him. And there's just so much that goes hand in hand with what you just shared of your own experience in the movie. And the other comment I wanted to share is that, you know, you're describing that there might be a couple of details that may not be perfectly accurate. But, you know, a lot of people get hung up like they might be watching a documentary like that and maybe they've just studied a book and they find one fact that's wrong and all of a sudden they just completely shut down. Mm. But they forget that. The allegorical teaching is more important than the facts. If the message is intact, even if there's a fact or two out of place, 
then the allegory has the power. But if we don't stay connected with the storyline and lose ourselves in minute details, then it, it's really a mirror of how we're living our life and our relationships often look the same way. Yeah, that's true. And and I've had to put that into perspective because you could imagine somebody who started off doing conspiracy films at first, it really rocked people's belief systems. And so a lot of people, they, they would get back to me as if I was personally insulting them with my film. Yeah, And so I had to put it in perspective for me that like, okay, Ben – it's it's now, you know, like you just shook these people's belief systems and you you are seeing what that looks like on the reflected end of it. And so for me, it was very important not to take it personally and to also respond back to them. If I did, sometimes I felt that they were just completely tuned out and they just wanted to, in a sense, get a rise out of me. So yeah. I let those people be. But the other ones who I, I felt they were being mean, but behind their meanness – they were scared yes. and, they, and they were still looking for answers. And I realized that, Ben, this is not a time to take it personally and, and tell this give you know tell this person what you really think of them this is a time for you to to show them that listen i'm in the same boat i'm just trying to figure these things out for myself and i'm putting my thoughts and my beliefs out into the world to be criticized by people like yourself so you know so my responses was usually like listen i really do I, i've never intended to offend anybody if anything i'm really just trying to get people to open up to how much more powerful they themselves are and if i got a few details wrong you're going to have to forgive that for the greater purpose of, you know, like I'm an artist. Again, I, I'm not an academic. So there's artistic license that I do draw upon here. If there are some details that are wrong, chalk it up to the fact that I didn't go to college for these things. I research independently and I do the best I can, but it's really, it's also a piece of art. So it's there, as you were saying, the greater allegory of it, it's, it's there to move you into acknowledging that there's something going on in the world that we haven't opened our minds to. And there's so much more power within us that we haven't opened our hearts to. And with those two key pieces of information, if we were to open ourselves up to it, our entire lives would change and only for the better. The awakening of consciousness could never be, uh, you know, and this is why I always use inspiring. Like if I inspire people, I've never heard people like feeling so inspired that they ran out and they did something heinous, like harmed somebody or like um, became more immature by, by their inspiration or anything along those lines. Inspiration seems to always lead from the heart. If it's not that, then it's not being inspired. It's being compelled or it's being driven, something along those lines. But inspiration, I believe, comes from the heart. So it could only translate. It's a currency that can only be spent on the betterment and the, the overflowing of love and creativity and ideas and power that we have within us. So that's why I, I'm an artist. I just try and inspire people because it's not for me to tell people, who they are, how to live their lives, what to do. But if I inspire them, then that inspiration usually leads to them digging into their own wellspring of skills, their own wellspring of wisdom, and integrating it into the, the great unknown and learning. 
moving beyond their limited scope of reality, moving beyond their fears and their doubts, and stepping into the unknown and integrating all that they've learned in the past with all that they're experiencing now in the, in, in the now to move forward into the future. So, like, that's, that's really just to <clears throat> explain the first part of, you know, what inspires me to do the work that I do. And the yeah. second part. Well, before well, go you. Ahead. Before you jump onto the second part, I have a couple of comments I want to share because I think they're appropriate. Inspire in spirit and spirit tracks back to breath and without breath, our soul can't be in our body. So when you're describing inspiring people, you're bringing them in touch with their own spirit and their own soul, which in my experience uh, doesn't bring us to acts of separation or violence, but it brings us to into an honest sense of coherence with something bigger than ourselves, which is what the spiritual path really ultimately is. And then, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz has his four agreements. He later came out with his fifth. And one of the four agreements is don't take anything personally. And his fifth <laughs> agreement is be skeptical, but learn to listen. And I think you know, we're going to get into some very interesting topics that can, you know, have a, a an uprooting effect on people. So I would say for all of you listening, be skeptical, but learn to listen. And uh, I always tell my students and people that write me like you can imagine they do, because I have a tendency to rototill people's feelings quite <laughs> often, not not by any, uh, you know, act of of malicious or malevolence, but just because of the, you know, the same thing, I'm going after long held beliefs that are just seriously in need of evaluation. Mm. And uh, so I always tell people, Hey, don't believe a word I say, simply try it and see if it works for you in your own life. And if you do it as I've taught you to do it and it doesn't work, come back and tell me and we'll see what we can do to move forward together. And so far, Every time someone's come back and says it didn't work and I evaluated how they were applying the methodology, there's been a 100% ch uh, uh, record of them not actually doing it right. And when I taught them how to do it right, they got it right. And I tell people, look, by the time I'm teaching things in public, I've tried it already with hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand or more patients and tested it thoroughly clinically and in my own life. But uh so I just thought I wanted to share those comments because they were in flow. What has ultimately become meaningful for you in your life, Ben? You know, that's it's funny because you actually just paraphrased what's become the most meaningful in my life. I, I can't really put it down to um, any specific trope or, you know, putting it into words is very difficult, but like always opening the heart more and a deepening understanding of what that means um, you know, so in everything that I do, it could never be harmed and could only be helped by opening the heart more to it. And so that's, that's one thing that's become ultimately meaningful, uh, for me. And the second part of it is exactly what you said. It's this balance between skepticism and, um, and open-mindedness. Yeah. And I, you know, Tom Campbell is this guy is, is kind of showing these models of reality being information-based and he got into the quantum physics and, and, and all the, that aspect of it, you know, kind of solved some of the paradoxes of modern physics. And what he, what he says in his talks is like, it, it does, you no 
good to only be skeptical or only be open-minded. You need the proper balance to be a proper student of life. The issue is, is when we become extreme in one of those. And so he clarifies the extreme of skepticism is cynicism, not believing anything regardless of the evidence or gullibility, believing everything regardless of the evidence. So skepticism and skepticism is like the, the more, um, in a, in a sense, tempered extreme of cynicism and open-mindedness is the more tempered extreme of the, uh, of gullibility. If we stay open-minded, but also skeptical, then I think what kind of happens is we, we're typically born and raised in this type of a culture to feel like we need to have a solid, static, unmoving, unchanging answer to life. And I think that's what's hindered me the most in the past is feeling like, oh, no, 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 I figured this out years ago. I don't need to learn any more about that topic or how to move or how to meditate. I've already figured that out. And you, anyone in the martial arts will know that the, the sensei or the master would say, you are, you are never on that plateau. You've never perfected that punch. You've never perfected the kick. You're always learning, even if you've been doing it your entire life. Even the sensei, the, the master and a guru and a sage would say the same thing. That this is when you hear like the, the wise person knows that they do not know. It's when somebody says that they do know that they've just reflected or in a sense kind of projected their ignorance in that one sentence. So for me, being the student of life has always been the most meaningful. Opening the heart, being humble, and that's what I believe, opening the heart to the fact that I, I'm not perfect, I don't know everything, but I do know how to listen to my heart and move forward and keep learning from life. And that way, any crisis that may pop up, it's an opportunity. It's not this life-shattering event. It's an opportunity to learn and move forward and, in a sense, pay that learning forward at, you know, to my children, to community. So that's pretty much what's become the most meaningful in my life. Well, you know, that's – I don't know if you can get higher than that. I mean, ultimately, those are the words of a of a wise man, and uh, it takes a fair bit of life experience, and in my belief, potentially an uh, uncountable number of past life experience for most people just to get to the point where they realize staying open-minded, being aware of what you know from your own personal experience to be true. I mean, if someone tells you that the best thing to do in an argument is punch somebody in the face, that's, there's a <laughs> point to be very skeptical about that because most of us have figured out that doesn't work. But, uh, you know, what rises up in me listening to you is Edward Edinger, uh, a psychiatrist and famous, famous union analyst, uh, produced a very good definition of consciousness. He said, consciousness is a psychic substance. Produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. And so, you know, I think it's important for us all to realize that without opposition to our belief system or our ideals for government or relationships or sex or money or, or almost anything, I mean, up has no meaning without down, hot has no meaning without cold. When we come to realize that. Consciousness is a psychic substance. It's something that's real. It's tangible. 
but it can't exist without living awareness of opposites. When a person really studies consciousness and gets to the point where they're really ready to embrace consciousness for what it is and explore it, which is an infinite exploration, as you know, then we start uh, being less in a defense mode when we meet opposition and more willing to look into the chaos. And one of one of the teachers that I really uh, acknowledge is a guy named Arnold Mendel, who is a union analyst and, and has a lot of different skills. And he developed a form of psychology called process psychology. And one of the things he says in one of his books is that essentially what he's saying is people have a tendency to run from chaos and, and try to avoid it at all costs, which leads to the ego trying to control everything. But he teaches that learning to look into the chaos in your life and look into the chaos in the world is very important because there's a tremendous amount of information in chaos. And in fact, if you look at most creation mythologies, they pretty much consistently say that what we think of as the world or life itself began in chaos. Mm -hmm. So uh, moving forward, I, I want to get into some fun and interesting issues here. So I've captured a little text from a few of my favorite books and comments from some of my favorite authors or what I would call my teachers. Uh, John Archibald Wheeler wrote in a book that I was reading some time ago, anytime now I expect to find a Rishi sitting at the end of one of my mathematical equations. <laughs> in, in 1932, Max Planck wrote in a publication titled, Where is Science Going? And, and, and this was 1932, which is pretty powerful when you hear the comment. And Max Planck is considered pretty much the founder of quantum physics or one of the key players in the foundation of quantum physics. He said, there can never be any real opposition between religion and science for the one is the complement of the other. Every serious and reflective person realizes, I think, that the religious element in his nature must be recognized and cultivated if all the powers of the human soul are to act together in perfect balance and harmony. And indeed, it was not by accident that the greatest, greatest thinkers of all age were deeply religious souls. Mm. Then a number of quantum physicists such as David Bohm and Wolfgang Pauli have studied sources such as the Tao Te Ching, the I Ching, and meditated on the Tai Chi symbol and stated that these concepts help them more deeply understand the nature of existence, quantum physics, and all things related now, uh, we now have mathematicians and objective evidence that you can get something from nothing. I read a book by Lawrence Krauss, who is a scientific materialist. And as much as I'm totally not in that camp, I do study both sides of viewpoints so that I can really seek to understand instead of reject. And uh, though he gave mathematical equations for the fact that we can get something from nothing, we now have the whole emerging science of the zero-point field. And years ago, I used to attend the field conference, and uh, I've worked with Lynn McTaggart, the author of the book, The Field, uh, written many articles for her uh, What Doctors Don't Tell You uh, magazine. But 
One of my favorite philosophers that I've studied quite a lot is Plotinus, and I believe he was around 2,370-something years ago was his day. But he explained that what people referred to as God is not a vacuum. And, And people back then used to even think that God was just this emptiness. He said that within the vacuum exists the plenum. And this goes hand in hand with what we're now finding out from research in atom colliders and quantum physics. So clearly, Ben, we're in an interesting time where we have both a clash of religious and scientific dogmas, as well as a synthesis of religious and spiritual teachings from antiquity that are being verified and shared by scientists brave enough to challenge the established dogma. And I, I, you know, a lot of your work is on exactly that. So, Ben, with all your studies and life experiences, what have you learned about what God is or isn't in your journey of life and through shamanic uh, work and plant medicine work? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) With that long (laughs) preface. (laughs) Well, man, I mean, like just just that question in and of itself is um, is very deep. Yeah. And so this has been the journey. Uh, definitely for plant medicines, all my meditation, even before I knew that that's what I was studying, even when I was just a musician and I was, you know, facing what, what I called even back then, you know, the void, you know, where do, where do songs come from when, when something is being, when I, when I'm hearing a song and I need to write it down or I need to put it onto, you know, the computer somehow or play it on a guitar, where is it coming from? And so I, I had these types of questions and I definitely, you know, everything that you just said there is like deeply, um, I, I kind of feel the same thing going back to, uh, Max Planck when he was saying the, you know, the religion and science, these, the, there's no real and any real opposition that is a contradiction. If they are in opposition at all, it's because they're complementary, not contradictory. Right. And so for me, you know, I guess like in my life experiences, the most that I've really learned about what God is uh, and isn't is a relationship to me that is constantly improving the more that I remove layers or veils um, away from my way of perceiving reality. So the more that I think that I have it figured out, the more veils I have between me and what I would perceive God to be. And so whereas I couldn't name exactly what God is uh, in that respect, I can say that it is definitely the the end-all be-all. And God, uh, or I'm sorry, love is in a sense my bridge to whatever God or Godhead would be. And so for me... Through my plant medicine experiences, what I've come to face the most is actually, you know, going down to the Amazon, drinking the ayahuasca brew, doing uh, San Pedro, which is a cactus with peyote. Uh, I'm sorry, with uh, with mescaline, much yeah. like peyote. Love it. Uh, yeah. So the more that I've done these types of experiences in the proper setting with a guide that has been doing it their entire life – um, I've been able to go to the depths of my own bullshit, if you will. And so <laughs> they'll do that for you <laughs> for sure. And you know, that's what I could say that I've been face to face with the most. Whereas my, my intention was to really see the face of God. Really what it's been is stepping closer to that, which is God 
through the veils by stepping through the, sometimes the very painful process of stepping through the veils of my own bullshit. And my own bullshit is the way that I have believed that I need to behave in certain scenarios in my life. So if somebody, you know, back in the past, if somebody challenges my manhood or challenges something that I'm uh, speaking about, then as you, as we were talking about before, I, you know, having to come to the realization that I have had opposition uh, or resistance to the opposites that people are bringing to me. When somebody challenges me, instead of seeing it as an opportunity, I felt very much so challenged and, and wishing to prove myself. And in those ways, I almost could see the entire chain of what you might call evolution and, and basically seeing what might be the, the lower, the lesser mature ways of responding to those who might challenge me instead of seeing them as God. And so in reality, what I, what I guess plant medicines and all my experiences, even outside of plant medicines have taught me is that everything that I'm looking at and the eyes that I'm looking with is God, but I forget and I forget and I forget. And these plant medicines, they, they bring me back to not, you know, God, they bring me back to the realization like, Ben, you are the one standing in the way of you and God. You are confounding your own, vis you know, your own vision. You are, in a sense, muddying your own waters by wishing that the way things are was not the way things are. Wishing that you could get through this turmoil without the lesson on the other end of it. So, like, in a sense, like, as I can't really say much of what God is, uh, and I know you and I have had this conversation, and I really uh, have appreciated how you've put it. For me personally, it's this relationship that I am, I know I'm moving closer to because I feel magic more. And the reason, and when I say magic, I mean very real magic in life, realizing that things line up in, there's some intelligence beyond me that is also a part of me that allows things to line up in such a way that I acknowledge them when they happen, being like, okay, this is a message for me and only me. Nobody else in the world would understand this but me. So this is literally a type of language. It's not in English, but it's a type of language directly for me to show me that, Ben, magic exists. It's in my disbelief, in my over-skeptical, analytical, reductionist past that's been those veils between me and God. And the the more that I realize that I'm coming into a, a real relationship with God are those moments of pure magic in realizing that it's a surrendering to it. It's not an adding to, you know, oh, I need to add more skills or more doctorates or more this or more that to my, my lexicon. No, it's more of a surrendering to the fact that all of it already is God. And it's my wishing to control it or turn it into something else that is the separation. That is the veil between me and God. Yeah, it's you know god's god's deeper than deep as you and i both know and it's it's the whole issue of god has been a hobby of mine since i was a child sitting in a christian church hearing that god loves you and will burn you in hell and i thought <laughs> i'm only 8 and this is already too crazy for me to buy into it's like it didn't make any sense to me so it it triggered off a lifelong quest of getting to the bottom of it. And I just 
every step of the way, I've just grown more and more empathetic to the human condition. But uh, what, what, as you were talking, what came up is you describing how the medicines took you into your own bullshit. But, uh, you know, the medicines definitely do that for sure. I mean, they're healers and, and, and uh, they do show you where you're blocking the experience of reality or being present with what actually is. But one of the things that you inspired me to share is, and this is important because a lot of people listening will have done plant medicines or want to do them. And, you know, that could be an entire show, but I'd highly recommend anybody that wants to do them seriously watch Ben's series on Gaia called Psychedelica so you really understand what you're getting into, what the pros are, what the cons are, what you need to look for as far as set setting uh, a guide or, or someone to lead you that's highly experienced so it doesn't just turn into some kind of uh, painful experience that might take you the rest of your life to recover from. But the the, you know, when you're describing having to experience all your shit, the, the message that that inspires me to share is that the grand majority of what we think of as our shit isn't really our shit. When you look at one of the exercises I do with my patients when we're doing mental emotional healing is I ask them this question, if I could download your mind into a computer right now, and we could sift through every single idea in your head, which could be in the many millions. And I asked you to choose which of them were actually of your own invention versus which ones came by way of parents, school teachers, media, and external influences. What percentage of the ideas that you're currently acting out and living consciously or unconsciously do you think would be yours? So far, most people have been quite honest and, and the highest number I've ever gotten is, well, probably two or three percent. And so I tell people, remember, when you're healing your stuff, you're healing humanity's stuff. You're healing your parents' stuff and your grandparents and their grandparents. And when you look at things like the book, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wu Lin and, and all the great research now showing how all these things from fetishes to diseases to addictions are passed to us through our genes. I just think it's important for, for us all to remember that when we're healing our stuff, we're doing world work. We, mm. we really are. That's such a beautiful way to say it. And, and I couldn't agree more. Honestly, the, um, the real, the real journey. And I guess, uh, you know, like in listening to you, the real lessons that I have learned uh, and it doesn't always have to be super confrontational. Uh, it, oftentimes it is if you're doing real deep work. Um, but with plant medicines, it doesn't have to be super confrontational. Um, but you're totally right. I've had many experiences where I felt this thing that I'm dealing with and the reason why I'm doing it in a group, in a ceremonial setting and, and also having to listen to other people's deepest, darkest issues coming out in their sobs and their wails and their cries. Uh, it really is, it's, it's heart opening work because when you hear that everyone is dealing with something, everyone has work to do to open their heart more and to actually surrender to love, which seems to be one of the harder things for people to accept is that they are worthy of love, that they are worthy of opening their hearts uh, to love. 
Um, what I have had to acknowledge in the past is this isn't just for me. I'm not, you're right. I'm not just dealing with something that happened to me when I was 15 or, you know, sometimes it's not even what happened to a human. It's what's happening to the earth and the extracting of, you know, precious minerals without any respect, the uh, slaughtering of uh, countless animals without any respect, the, you know, indentured servitude of of humanity with less than any respect, you know, so those types of things, I've had to come to terms with, and I've had visuals on plant medicines where I've seen animals being slaughtered and I've seen the faces of the people doing it. People that I, I don't know in this life, <clears throat> but I, I recognize the looks on their faces. I recognize where they're at. I, I can see how much they hurt and how much that they've just allowed themselves to be callous or numb to to their actions and how it actually impacts others. And I think that's one of the biggest things about my work is stop, stop trying to tell yourself or stop allowing yourself to believe that you are insignificant and you don't have enough power. And because there's 7 billion people and there's this huge social and economic stratification and you seem to be on the lower end of it, that you have no power. That's the problem. It's not the social and economic stratification. It's your belief in not being significant enough to bring some kind of real change into this world. And that's what I used to believe. And the more we believe that, the the more we believe, oh, does it really matter if I slaughter this one animal or if I say this really rude thing? In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter, right? So when we disempower ourselves and, in a sense, convince ourselves with this mantra that uh, it doesn't really matter, there's so many bigger, you know, more powerful people out there, why do, why do my actions really matter? That's the most disempowering thing that I've actually felt with the plant medicines is stop believing that you are just you. I like how you mentioned that book by Wu, um, the, it didn't uh, start with you. It, Mark Wu Lin. Wu Lin, that's right. It didn't really start with us. And in a way, think of a doily. You know, every time we try and identify just one string on a doily, it always loops back into another part of it. So in yes. a way, it's, it's not like some just never-ending linear string. It's, a, it's like a complete woven tapestry that's a closed-loop system. Anything that you do now, in a sense, does have an effect of the, the future, the present, and I believe the past. Yes, it's, uh, you know, it's the the other thing, too, that came to my mind is people forget that we're all tapped into the collective unconscious, which contains the entire history of not only humanity, but everything that's ever lived on the planet. And, And that's at the level of the world. We're tapped into the archetypal unconscious. And as we go deeper into meditation and into ceremony with plant medicines, A lot of the things that people um, interpret without the experience of realizing what's happening as their own stuff is actually the stuff that basically drives consciousness. It's the engine of consciousness, which has to have those polarities. There's, as long as life has been around, something's always eating something, something's Mm -hmm. getting killed. Um, You know, Jesus said, love thy enemy as thyself. Unfortunately, uh, most Christians haven't really gotten the meaning of that yet. But 
when 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 he's saying that he's saying realize that what you really are is that other person and they are you and you know from all of our plant medicine experiences i think both of you and i would agree that the ego creates the illusion of separation but it's a necessary illusion because without the illusion of separation we wouldn't have the authentic joy and experience of being able to love when I say I love you, Ben, or I love you, Penny, or I love you, Angie, or I love you, Mana, it's because the ego creates the illusion of separation that there's a flow of energy in, and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. And I believe that's what love is. So the ego is actually one of God's greatest inventions and tricks. It's just getting to the point where we can use our ego for enjoying this subject object relationship and getting to the point where we realize that when the pain teacher shows up in our life, it's usually a gift to help us be less rigid and, and guide us to more integration in our lives so that we can reach the point where the ego no longer is a tool of separation, but it's a tool of I and thou. It's a sacred place in which we can actually see, appreciate, and worship, adorn, hold, cuddle, respect, and even do healthy conflict and combat, which I don't think a healthy relationship can be free of healthy conflict. And I think that when I look back at my years as a martial artist and, and a boxer, uh, all the things I learned in combat about myself and about people uh, were invaluable. And, and so I think at the end of the day, if we really meditate on what God is, then we have to come to the realization if we get to the point where we realize the perfection inherent in what God is, then we also come to the realization that Everything that we don't like or that we're very against or that we hate is somehow inherently there as an expression of that perfection. And, and that takes a long walk in the woods to get clear on, doesn't it? It does. It does. Those are those hum very humbling moments. You know, I, I've noticed that, you know, <clears throat> I think if you have if you have a lover – you know, whether it's a, a wife, a spouse, just a significant other, that's one of the, or a child, you know, that's one of the most, um, beautiful learning experiences that we have. Like the, the, I, I think every relationship is a sacred relationship. We just, it doesn't dawn on us. So that whole love thy enemy, it's, it's the same thing. Like it's a sacred relationship. And, you know, in many of the teachings, like if you, if you look back into some of the ancient teachings, I believe it's like the, the Nag Hammadi scrolls, um, the understanding, well, at least the Gnostics, and you look at some of these teachings, the understanding of Lucifer actually played a very powerful role of being a, uh, that final test, which is why for Christ, you know, Lucifer would show up at, you know, at, at the final precipice and like show Christ, like, look at this entire kingdom. It can all be yours if you bow down to me. 
you know? And so it's a test. Like, and a lot of the times we, as you were saying, like running away from the chaos or avoiding the lesson within the conflict is, is the easiest way to just demonize that final lesson or the most difficult lessons that we may have. And we would see that today playing out in the, our relationships with our, um, what we would call an enemy or somebody that we don't like or a situation. It doesn't even have to be a person that's an enemy. It could be top down oppression, uh, a type of, you know, economic class that we fall into that doesn't, uh, you know, in by our perspective, allow us to believe that we can reach X, Y, and Z because that's just the way the cookie crumbled. This was the hand that life dealt us. So in that, that's, that's a perspective of being like, well, this is, this is the thing that oppresses me. But by looking from a different perspective and acknowledging in the same way that Maya, the Mayans, uh, or the Mayas that some people say, they wouldn't call them the Mayans, but the Mayas, um, they had this word in Lakesh, which means I am another yourself or you are, are another me. And mm-hmm. they had this specific handshake, you know, where you, you wrap their hands together and you look at it from a top down and it's, uh, this involution spiral of the, of the fingers. And it's very beautiful, but this idea that I am another yourself goes beyond just individuals that you meet. It's all the moments in your life and especially those most trying and those darkest situations have the most beautiful lessons if you lean into it and acknowledge that it is not there to uh, to destroy you as much as it is there to transform you. So it will destroy a certain aspect of your your clinging or your grasp on reality as it is or your perception of reality. But then once you destroy that, your enemy then turns into that guru or that teacher that teaches you. So I absolutely agree. I mean, like taking that long walk in the wood to get, you know, in the nature to get straight with all this, it can seem very mind boggling. But if you really think about it, you go back into the Tao Te Ching, you go into a lot of the Eastern philosophies that says, you know, there's, there's the Tao that you can speak of and there's the Tao that you cannot speak of. And there's this other passage, you know, you know, a stream running by, you put your hand into it and you can experience it with an open hand. But as soon as you try and close your fist and hold on to a part of that stream, not only do you not get the same sensations and the same experience from it, but you're also, you you are removing that water from its natural flow. And what happens with water once it stops flowing is it becomes stagnant. And I think yeah. this goes right back to that doily expression or the closed loop system. Mm-hmm. Everything's always eating something. And really, it's just our way of looking at it uh, by saying, oh, well, it's killing that thing. And yes, that's one way of explaining it. And sometimes it seems very violent, but this is what life does. The leaves fall from the trees. They hit the ground. They turn into the fertilizer that, in a sense, helps that mycelium blanket. It helps the soil. Um, and it, it truly is better for nature. So the death of things is the beginning of the birth of things. And so that, that's the grand paradox that many of us, you, many people intellectually, they have it figured out. But when it comes to actually living by these tenets and acknowledging that the death of things and those things that we would call our enemies are not the things that we need to destroy, but things that we need to embrace and integrate. And I'll give two examples. One was Neo in the Matrix. At the end of, uh, the first one, um, Matrix, uh, I forget if there was a, a, 
a follow-up name to that. But uh, number one, at the end of that with Mr. Anderson, he doesn't technically, if you watch it, he doesn't destroy Mr. Anderson. He merges with him and becomes him and light protrudes out of them. And it, yes, there's this big explosion and it's very theatrical, but he doesn't destroy him. He merges or integrates with his enemy. And it's the same thing as Luke Skywalker. He goes into the cave uh, where he has to, in a sense, go into this vision quest, which the Mayas did. Many groups vi- uh, went on vision quests in caves. And so Yoda, the wise sage, sends Luke into the cave. And Luke says, you know, um, uh, something about um, now, now I'm forgetting what he says, but it's just like, you know, uh, I, I'm not afraid. And Yoda says, oh, you will be. You will be. And that's the point of it. He has to enter the cave of his own fears. And then when he does, what does he see? He encounters um, Darth, uh, Darth Vader. And when he goes into combat with Darth Vader or his vision of Darth Vader, he beheads him, which is also a part of Mayan mythology. He beheads him. And then when the mask breaks off, it wasn't his father or Darth Vader at all. It was himself that he was fighting. So these, these are just allegories of when we call something an enemy, it's us. When we say that something is oppressing us, it's us. And it may seem completely, you know, ass backwards. How can this top down economic slave system be me? Well, therein lies the clue that we're talking about. We are God. We are everything. We keep participating in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, true. We keep voting with our dollars and and wondering why we're oppressed by it. Yeah. You know, uh, Joseph Campbell said, the cave you fear to enter has the treasure you need the most. And and I think that's really true of all of us. And I think plant medicines (laughs) walk you into these caves and and though many think they're going out to get high or have fun and get misled by some of the, you know, gobbledygook on the internet, uh, you know, when you actually get a shamanic dose of a proper medicine, you, you will find out where your caves are. And if you breathe right and you have a good guide or shaman or medicine man, they'll, work with you to get to the treasure you need the most but it really does take some on the spot growth and the other thing that came to my mind as you were talking you meant mentioned our intellectual understanding of things which i believe that's one of the challenges of our entire education system worldwide is it's turned us into a bunch of people that worship ideas more than experiences and uh, carl jung's got a beautiful quote he says intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And that's damn true. I mean, you can Mm -hmm. read all you want to read about psychedelics and have all sorts of opinions, but it's amazing that most of the people that are against, you know, uh, psi or against ESP or psychokinetics or clairvoyance or the fact that clairvoyance were able to identify things such as elements on the periodic table before science ever even identified them they don't even look at the evidence they don't they just hold on to this bias and carl jung says you can tell how much of an intellectual a person is by how many references they use 
And, mm-hmm. you know, as a guy who's been studying scientific literature for his whole career, I can tell you it's so true. Like I'm reading studies on the things that I've spent a lot of time working with clinically and some of the conclusions that are drawn and you see 150 references, it's like this person actually doesn't have any experience of what they're talking about. They're just totally an intellectual who's cutting and pasting other people's ideas and has convinced themselves because it fits the paradigm that they were educated in that it's true. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one thing about a, a legitimate spiritual practices is it will it will take you through the door of intellectualism into direct experience. And I think one of the things about being humble is that eventually you learn that the importance of being humble is because you may have to face yourself once you come to a deeper realization, whether it be what love is or who really loves you or all the things that we've held as judgments and and reasons to treat people certain ways or separate from them. But when we actually learn the truth of things and we have to go back, it can make the journey home to apologize or reconnect a lot harder if we stay too rigid in our belief systems and our judgments. Because by the time we figure it out, the the humbling can be quite potent, can't it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the humbling nature of that is um, it's incredible. And you know, honestly, like this, this it's a lesson that I've had to learn because as soon as I became a filmmaker and I started putting my ideas out there, I started getting back people who you know want to challenge me at that level, at the level of intellect, and. And it's great. You know, I appreciate it because it does sharpen the blade for me. It, it makes me go back into the research and, and take a look at it. And then for the most part, you know, I've, I've found that it's been my opposition. That's like the people who disagree with me in my films that have actually taught me the most. Um, but it, it, it hasn't been because they, they have been the wise teacher that has schooled me as much as their higher self was the wise teacher that schooled me because usually it was their manner of coming to me and speaking to me. So like to kind of like piggyback off of the thing that you were saying that Carl Jung said, just if you want to know how intellectual somebody is or stuck in the intellect they are, just listen to how many references they make. And this is totally true. And this has actually been something I've been wrestling with for quite some time is it's very academic to go in and, and uh, show all your scientific research and show that you, you've taken this from this reference point and this from that reference point. But at the end of the day, when you look at that, that it can't be better than a logical train of thought because we are then meant to believe, let's say this person's book has a hundred scientific references in it. Now I have to just either a believe the way that it's the way that that scientific experiment was done actually translates well into this train of thought. I'd have to go back and I'd have to take a look at it. And at the end of the day, what we're really talking about are people's words. It's not yeah. fact. So, like this is the the main point I try and make when it comes to science. A lot of skeptics 
and I'm talking the hardcore skeptics, the, the ones that do nothing but read, you know, Scientific American, or uh, I think there's even a Skeptics magazine, yeah. which is great. And I think that that all has its place because yes, some people can go too far on the opposite side and just believe anything as long as it it uh, it validates what they would like to believe. That's a very real thing. However, when I take a look at a lot of skeptics, what they seem to believe the most is, um. Science is on their side. The science is in. The science is clear. There's all these ways of saying it. Well, the facts are in, ladies and gentlemen. The science is clear. And that's the one thing that I take the biggest problem with. Like, no, yes. the science is not clear. And, and here's how I say – here's the reason why I say that. Because you you set up a scientific experiment to see if this drug works, Okay. So there are several issues that can pop up. For one, we know that if you're just looking at the pharmaceutical in industry, a standard practice is to publish the, the papers that, in a sense, show their drug in a favorable light, but they don't publish the ones that don't show it in a favorable light. And so they, in a sense, bury a lot of um, real evidence, which is bad science, burying evidence, you know, it, because it flies in the face of your theory. Yes. Um, and then from that point forward, then you already have skewed science. So by the time it makes it to the Scientific American or the journalist who's saying, oh, okay, I read the scientific study. Now I'm going to put it in my magazine so millions of people can read it. Because millions of people don't read these scientific um, assays or, you know, dis, you know, like they don't read the original experience or experiment. They read somebody's extrapolation of what it means. So yes. what they're getting is yet another person who's now one degree of separation from the original person who gathered the data. And you're still dealing with that original person's extrapolation. So it leaves the, the realm of science and turns into philosophy. Okay, here's the data, but what does it mean? Well, we believe that it means this. And then the journalist picks it up and says, oh, well, he believes that it means this. And he's the science and he's going off of uh, scientific facts. So what I'm saying is also science and it's also fact. When really now it's two philosophical degrees away from science and then once it gets to people's Facebook posts who are resharing it and putting – adding their thoughts onto it, this is actually something very beautiful but we shouldn't be calling it science. It's called philosophy. It's how people extrapolate uh, the, the, the meaning or their own meaning, placing meaning on top of the, these data points. And these data points, yes, they're data points and they're great, but we a lot of the times believe that we can then place what that meant, what that data meant in its original uh, setting, and we can apply it to other things that we, we'd like to say. You see, that's why, you know, blah, 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 this drug is best for sinusitis or whatever it might be. When really the data might have showed that the – Placebo was better. <laughs> Well, yes, it might have actually shown that the placebo is better. But let's say in the one scientific paper that actually the drug worked better than placebo, you're saying, okay, well, it works slightly better than placebo. So it must be the best drug we have out there. A, that's wrong. It's, it's just not – unless you've actually looked 
out there and seen every and compared everything, then that's bad science to say that it's the best thing uh, out there that we know of. That's, that's called marketing at that point. Right. It's so, so it becomes the world of marketing. So without going like too deep into that, I think what most people are afflicted by is the belief that they can – they can say, I'm standing on the side of science. See, I read it in a book. I heard it from a scientist. I listened to a doctor and this is exactly verbatim what they said. Ignoring the fact that all humans are fallible, all humans have their own perspective of things. And as true as, as true or on point as those perspectives might be for that individual, it may not have a one-to-one correlation to your life and it may not be applied perfectly into your life. So what, where I'm going with this long explanation is when people are saying the science is in, the facts speak for themselves. No, they don't. They really don't. They need other people to speak for them. And usually those people are biased. So this is why I really try and dive into, listen, I'm not the academic and I, you know, I can't go face to face with many of these people with, with their type of jargon. So I never enter into their type of jargon. What I do is I use logic, as much logic as I can actually muster. And to show that even those people do not have that much of a clue, especially those people do not have much of a clue about the full scope of reality because they have to come from the assumption that creativity, ingenuity, and our ability to see outside the bounds of the reality in front of us, meaning, okay, I know this is what I'm seeing with my eyes, but I still don't believe that it has to be that way. Maybe it's the way that I'm just decoding and perceiving it right now. The more we begin to open ourselves to these types of ideas that our biases even change the way that we see things, hear things, smell things, taste things, and touch things, then we start to realize that everything else, all the science, is an institution full of people, and these are mobs. So without going conspiracy, what we're talking about when we're talking about scientific institutions, science is a process of consciousness. Scientific institutions are mob mentality. And the reason why science has no real conflict with religion is because science and religion are both processes of consciousness. You cannot say that, oh, the scientific process of consciousness is better than the religious and the religious we need to get rid of because uh, look at all the people who have died in the name of God and all the – you know, the people who've spoken complete, utter crap from behind a pulpit. Well, don't let that ruin religion. Let that ruin, ruin religious institutions and the words and the actions of men. Because there's also the artistic and the creative process of consciousness in which I can integrate what is and what might be, but is not yet. And once I integrate those things, that is alchemy. That is a form of magic. And yeah. if enough people believe it, Bam, it starts becoming real and people start hovering around this, in a sense, center of gravity. And that's what all corporations are. That's what all grassroots movements are. That's what all religions are as people coming together around some kind of center of gravity. It cannot be science and science alone. That's the danger that I see of all this ultimate reductionist, analytical, skeptical people saying we need to get rid of abstract thought, get rid of religion, get rid of creativity. God did not give us creativity for no reason. It wasn't a mistake. It's not a byproduct of consciousness. It's a very important piece of consciousness that we're being shunned away from using in modern society. 
So that's that's my spiel on that. <laughs> well, uh, what came to me as I was listening to you is that uh, as a metaphor, religion starts the wars and science builds the weapons to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah, so it's it's uh, everybody comes out the winner. The religions uh, spend their money on the military industrial complex and the military industrial complex uh, funds the death of millions of people and they all go to church, uh, and ask God for forgiveness. And as they, <laughs> as the old saying goes, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Oh my God. Yeah. I've, I totally heard that one. And this also reminds me of, it's a little, uh, kind of, kind of a joke, but really just an explanation of the way people use things like science and religion. Imagine, uh, an ape coming across a genie in a lamp accidentally rubs the lamp the genie pops out and says your lucky day ape you have one wish anything you want you could get anything you want just name it and the ape in its own language says oh my god this is great i'll take the biggest banana in the world <laughs> and if you think about it that's that's the best that that ape could come up with in that respect because it's the most that that ape could conceive of yes. and wrap its head around so with that being said it's also like you could be – God could hand you the gift of a lifetime like a genie in a, in a, in a bottle. But if you are <clears throat> coming from a close-minded murderous anger from within, then what you'll do with that genie or that lamp is you'll look at it and you'll be like, oh, wow, look at this lamp. I can smash that other ape over the head with it and kill it. You know what I mean? So it's like we have these beautiful tools such as plant medicines and psychedelics. Um, we have these beautiful tools that have always been here, and we seem to have this hubris as this scientific civilization. We call ourselves civilized. We have this hubris to believe that we understand nature in its entirety, so we know what plant medicines are. We know that these are dangerous for people, and we need to put them on Schedule 1 in the Controlled Substance Act. Well, that's a misunderstanding of what these tools are here to do. That's like basically saying – well, every time we jump off a cliff, we end up dying at the bottom of it. So we need to ban all cliffs. Yeah. Okay. Or, you know, as we're driving, you know, every time I drink and drive, you know, I end up killing somebody. So we need to ban driving. So it's the wrong use of the tools that we have available for us. And that's really the, that's really the shortcoming of science. Science is incredible when used correctly. You know, it's the same as that genie in the lamp. It can do wondrous things as long as it's used correctly. And when I say correctly, the only reference point I could place to that is the real true wisdom of the heart. And you and it's one of those things I can't prove to you how to listen to the heart. You'll know it when you feel it and it will feel much like that feeling that you got when you were you know, a little babe in your mother's arms being held and caressed, you know, that feeling of safety, that love that, you know, there are others here that wish the best for me, that I am held by endless love. You can't prove that you're feeling it you, like to anybody else. You can only prove it to yourself. And that is the tool we need to be using science, religion, philosophy, and art with is the open heart. Well, yes. And science really ultimately is the pursuit of truth. And the day that we think we know the truth and stop looking for it is the day that we've deceived ourselves because, as you know, science has changed its opinions on many things. Science is evolving itself. Um, you know, so 
there's a great book for those that want to know more about how science plays its own games to manipulate people and and get results to fit its own paradigm. And the book is called Science Set Free by Rupert, Rupert Sheldrake. Sheldrake. Yeah, yeah. And it's absolutely awesome. Well, well, Ben, I'm I'm having a great time. I mean, these are all really important concepts, and I think the the kind of take home if we stop the recording right now and called it a day, it would be learn to have an open heart and an open mind, be skeptical but learn to listen. Know that what you think of as your ideas are really not your own until you've done some very, very deep introspective meditative and spiritual healing and can embrace adequate amounts of creativity to create something novel. And essentially, as Matt Kahn says, everything is here to help us evolve. Uh, that, that would be kind of the summary so far. What do you think? Well, totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, Shit. The only thing that we can really say is happening in truth is our experience, you know, yes. and then everything after that is, is an afterthought. It's, it's a way of putting it into some kind of context that allows us to feel comfortable enough to keep moving forward. And I, you know, I feel like my life personally, having gone from, you know, being into sports and then breaking my leg and deciding to take up music and then all of a sudden going into the military and then realizing I wanted to go back into music and and then eventually becoming a filmmaker, going the corporate route, now back to the contract route, being a father of now three children. It's just really I feel like my entire life is a series of disappearing steps. Like I'm always venturing out into uncharted territory for me and reinventing myself at every step of the way. And as soon as my foot leaves one step, it disappears. It's kind of like this affirmation that you're not to go backwards. You can't fall back and rest on your laurels. You need to keep moving forward. And in a way, like this has been a challenge for me, but it's also been a lesson that really what I'm doing here is just I'm you know, I'm not learning how to go deeper and deeper into just one career field or one train of thought or one to be one kind of person. As long as that one kind of person is somebody who can continue to grow, uh, learn, uh, open the heart, bring more love into this world and inspire more and more people in more efficient. And really, that's the thing about art is like inspiring people not just in the same way every time, but continuing to evolve the conversation of art. And so inspiring people in new ways. So really, yeah, I mean, this totally seems like I'm the student of life and all I can really do is love people as much as I possibly can and allow them to acknowledge in ways that are not pushy, but also, you know, firm enough to show that I care about them, to show them that this life is is a school. It, it really is a, is a school. school. There's no question. Uh, and, and and not only is it a school, and, th and this concept is something I've meditated on very deeply and done many medicine journeys to explore, but I really believe that our evolution is God's evolution. I mean, if God is all, the source and sum of everything, anytime any one entity or conscious entity evolves – then God has itself evolved. When you think of God as pure, absolute potential, 
then God can't know God without experience. And I think that's really where the subject-object duality that the ego provides is so important because it allows God to experience God without first consciously realizing that God's looking at itself, which if you think about it, makes for the perfect simulation. Because essentially, if God is God, then God's totally alone. And the only way to have an experience if you are totally alone is to invent the perception of other. And so often it's said that when we come into life from the afterlife, we drink from the river of forgetfulness. So we essentially forget that we're God so that the experience is so authentic, it's undeniably real. And because God can't experience its own potential without a relativity, without space, time, and movement, which are the three correlates of consciousness, according to Itzhak Bentov's research, then it's only here in what we call life that God can experience itself and grow itself and come to realize it what it is. And I think that's, I think that's the ultimate Enlightenment experience is when you realize that what you are is God experiencing itself and that without the highs and the lows, none of it would have any meaning. And, you know, separation makes connection meaningful. Death makes life meaningful. So there's the, you know, it, it, it takes a lot to step back from the show enough. You know, a lot of people have their face so close to the television screen. They can't see the bigger picture that we're talking about. They're, mm-hmm. they're too caught in the matrix of it all. And, and I think creativity is – you know, I've studied Amit Goswami's work on creativity, which is beautiful. And I, I really think he hits on many, many very important points about creativity. But when we're talking about God, I, I, I want to kind of mine you some more uh, before we run out of time – how do you feel sacred geometry and the new field of sonic geometry pan out with pan out with or correlate to the Hindu concept of om a u m underscore so ah uh, I awaken ooh I'm dreaming m I'm falling asleep underscore totally no consciousness of reset restart as logos or all that is so um when we look at the concept of logos as the source of sound, vibration, information, potentially even energy, um, I'm just curious, how do you feel that sacred geometry and sonic geometry correlate with the ancient concept of Ohm and logos? <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, really, uh, you're really diving into the, um, the research that I did uh, a while back. Um, so for me, you know, just, uh, in, in my memory, Om being the sacred sound of creation. Um, yes. so in this, <clears throat> in this specific sound, you know, you, obviously you would hear that, um, you know, in the beginning there was the word and the yes. word was with God and the word was God. So right. this idea, like this, um, the, the breath moved across the face of the waters, making yes. the waters move. Yes. So this is really tapping into some really deep stuff that is even in like, you know, alchemical texts as well. Yeah. And so, so for me, you know, when you're talking about like sonic geometry and sacred geometry, 
really, he, like, it kind of gets back to Isaac Bentov's work that, you know, time, space, and movement. And so, like, when you take a look at what we were talking about uh, earlier as a doily, you know, it's this string that keeps wrapping back in on itself to make this very fantastic, um, in a sense, geometry. Yes. So by looking at that and realizing that that's really – it's more two-dimensional um, than what we're speaking of, if you actually look at the science of cymatics where you, you take some kind of um, bioluminescent or fluorescent dye and you put it in water and then you pump a frequency into that water, according to the frequency and at what um, – uh, how many oscillations there are, yeah. you will get a certain type of geometry in the water. And so this also explains why snowflakes have their hexagonal shape. Uh, you see a lot of uh, hexagonal shapes in cymatics in this sonic geometry. And the way that I really look at it is it's like, so water in a sense, you could say it's formless in that respect. And then when some kind of breath or word or sound, uh, especially tone, sacred sounds, um, are introduced into the water, then it gives it form. So for me, the reason why I always loved this idea of cymatics is it really shows the, I mean, damn, you could go into some of the images of cymatics and then draw a one-to-one correlation with trilobites, things from the Precambrian era, you know, the the patterns on um, uh, turtle shells, uh, you could actually see that a lot of this geometry perfectly correlates with, uh, you know, sunflower uh, blossoms, the, the, um, the spirals that move in different directions to create what looks like a toroidal field if you're looking directly at the sunflower. Yeah. So there's there's this vibration that's inherent in all that is like, let's say being spoken into existence because we don't really truly know what is keeping the fabric of reality together. We have our concepts, but we don't really know what it is. And there's been a lot of myth that has to do with like the word brought everything into existence. And it was some vibration that brought or dreamed everything into existence. And so in a sense, I always take a look at what we've been talking about this entire time. You know, we, it's hard for us to see it when we're standing in our own ego and standing in our own small perspective. It's hard for us to see the whole orchestra because we are just the triangle player or the, you know, the one playing the fiddle or something like that. But if and when you can actually take a big step back from that screen, as you said, and take a look at the big picture and the the way of looking at that is basically meditation or by the use of plant medicines and removing ourselves from our little perspective and taking a look at the big perspective, then we'll come to see that the way we perceive what's speaking reality into, exi- into existence from day to day is so small and so minuscule that we've just, in a sense, tuned out all the other noises. We've tuned it out. Like, okay, it's a given. The sun comes up and then it goes down. Uh, you know, like the grass grows, the the trees lose it, le- its leaves at winter. There's these cycles, but we don't really look into it. It's almost too mind-boggling when we try and see the grand glory of all that is um, from our limited perspective. So when we 
do these plant medicines or in the face of real deep meditation, we can actually remove ourselves from that small perspective and see it from a larger perspective, then I believe what we're actually tapping into is that greater vibration. We're actually, in a sense, kind of like caught in the river of the the total orchestra, the total word of God or that total ohm. So I don't know if I'm straying too far from from what your original question was, but you know that's that's really what I kind of feel how sacred geometry, sonic geometry ties into that you know Vedic principle or the idea of what is Om, this sound of creation, and I believe it's just that we are participating in the orchestra or in this the grand symphony of all that is happening, um, but for the most part. Most of us identify ourselves with the triangle player, well, you know, what we believe to be the least important uh, part of the whole orchestra. I'm not the maestro. I'm not the tuba player. I'm not playing the drums. I got the triangle and I, I hit it once every song or, or you know, like it, right. whatever it might be. We disempower ourselves. So we do not hear the ohm. And we do not feel ourselves to be a, a great part of the grand sacred geometry or the grand orchestra. We disempower ourselves in that respect and we forget and we, in a sense, with our great magic and our great power and potential, because we're all immature magicians and that's not to disrespect anyone. But if you don't, if you haven't been cr- uh, working on the craft of being a magician and learning how to actually change reality in the face of it, um, then you are still a magician. You're just an immature magician. Yeah. You believe you believe disempowering things into existence. You create things that are not really serving you or other people. So that's really what I say. Like we are all magicians, but when we don't step into that power, then we just become one of the foot soldiers in the grand army being orchestrated from uh, a center of gravity that we don't even understand. Or fall into the victim archetype. Every, it's always everybody else's fault that my life is so shitty. Right, right. You know, Absolutely. in my – yeah, in my studies, are you familiar with the Law of One by Raw series? Yeah. Yeah, great, great set of books. Um, in there, they speak of the logos being specific to star systems. I'm wondering what your thoughts are with regard to the potential that the ancient seers that gave us the teaching of Om may have actually been connecting to the logos of our sun as opposed to the logos of either, say, the, the Milky Way galaxy or the to- totality of all that is. And um, it's interesting, too. I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that uh, NASA has actually recorded the sound of the sun and it sounds exactly like a bunch of Buddhist monks chanting Om. Huh. I had heard that. Oh, well, you got it. Just search that on Google, Sound of the Sun NASA, and it sounds like Om. It's crazy. After, you know, studying Om quite deeply and chanting mm-hmm. Om, you know, a lot. Uh, I love chanting Om. It's one of the ways I balance myself in the sauna and do it with my clients. But when you hear the sound of the sun, it's like so powerful. You go, oh, my God, these guys tapped right in to the sun, you know. But the thing is, when you study the Vedas and a lot of the Hindu philosophy and teachings, Om is presented as as the sound of God or the sound of Brahma or the sound of all creation. 
but in the law of one, they talked about how uh, each star is essentially a logos and, and especially stars with planetary systems. And they talk about how the fact that there's planets like Earth all over the universe and they talked about the fact that not only is each star a logos, but the center of each galaxy, like our Milky Way galaxy, is a logos. And they actually say some of them are slightly weighted to love and some are slightly weighted to evil. And they say that our galaxy is weighted at 51% love. So as long as a person's at least 51% loving, then they will continue to evolve as a human being, but if they're not, then they have to spend more time experiencing what they're creating, which the concept I have for that is love is a boomerang. Anything you produce always makes its way back to you. So, uh, and since God has all the time in the world and in the universe and nothing else to do, but experience itself, I tell people, you got to realize God's a hundred percent committed to experiencing whatever it is. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean that it's not a viable form of study. And look at human beings. They, they do their best not to look at their shadow, not to look at their biases and their judgments and to maintain their illusion of rightness and, and uh, you know, righteousness and all that stuff. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Do you think that the the ancients were tapping into our sun, to the galaxy, or to the totality when they when they experienced Ohm? Yeah, that's a very good question. And and you know, it's been a long time since I actually tapped into the law of one. So um I I'm glad you're refreshing my memory. Uh I hadn't even remembered that that was in there. But um you know, to to stay within my wheelhouse, I really have to just go on my like what I'm feeling inside uh, based upon what you're speaking of. And the reason why I, I don't believe it's outside of the realm of like my logic is because, well, look at the word logic and logos, you yeah. know, starting, mm-hmm. you know, so <clears throat> for me, uh, is it about the totality or is it just about our sun? I think that's a very good question and, and like the way that I want to approach answering that is more or less just by showing m- where I'm at on the path of understanding is – so I've gone into I, – I haven't read all the, the Vedas. You know, it's, it's There's quite, a lot of them. It, it's a lot, yeah. <laughs> be a long um, but, read. <laughs> I've, yeah, got just, I've got a lot of them here. <laughs> I know you do. I've seen your library. It's, it's pretty impressive. Um, so with that being said, like – um, you know, as I've dug into like biblical texts, ancient scriptures from many different cultures, what I've realized is every single time I go back to them, as long as I've been growing and evolving and learning since I went, since I read them the previous time, I always see something new in the way to interpret them. And I think that's the thing about, um, not just these, these scriptures, but also of music is it's meant to be it's it's purposely not on the nose it's it's just interpretable enough for you to be able to see different levels and layers of yourself in it so it's it's one of these it's one of these kind of paradoxes it's like you can't be told directly you have to be told indirectly so you follow a thread and discover yourself in the learning of it so with that preface what I would like to say is um, 
the Vedas may have been talking about uh, about the totality. Uh, but for me, I would have to dive back in to see if there isn't also another way of, of looking at it to see that they were just speaking about our totality and that it may be different outside of that. Um, you know, also getting into H.P. Blavatsky's understandings of like having connected with a lot of sages in the mountains and them giving her the uh, the teachings that they never put in the books. Right. You know, uh, so there's a lot to be said about, you know, we we can go back into the Vedas and say, OK, this is what the ancient Indians must have believed. But if you look into Mike Crowley's book, you know, the what is it? Um, the Secret Drugs of Buddhism. There's a lot of what you will hear in the scriptures, and then there's a lot of the oral traditions that they would not allow to be written down. So there may have been there may have been more to it then. For where does the Om come from? Our Son, the Great Totality. And I guess the greatest point I could make is that I personally don't know. I would have to dig deeper into that. But what I feel is I love the fact that. These things are always revising themselves. And when we look back into history, I'm reading this book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. I've heard of it. Maybe you mentioned it to me. Yes, you did mention it to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great book. And basically what the author is saying is he's looking back at all the textbooks in our educational system. So how we are raising our youth to learn things, to know specific things, rather than learning how to think critically, we're learning what to think, like what data we should regurgitate when it's time for that quiz. So with that being said, he says, I believe that the best way we should be teaching history is not as if it's a closed, done deal and a fact, but a question mark. Like the more that we can ask questions, it'll start making history seem like it's not actually a static thing because perhaps it is, but perhaps it's not a static thing because of our relationship to it. We have to learn about it, but when we learn about it, we only learn about it through many degrees of separation from the actual event, and we have to believe all those people that wrote about it, their biases, their, you know, maybe hypocrisies. We have to believe that we know how to wade through all of that BS and arrive at the truth because we read a textbook about what happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The more I tap into history, the more I realize that most of written history is a lie. It's either A, completely fabricated, B, misunderstood by today's standards as opposed to the way that it was written and in in the context that it was written before, as if we understand the way that ancient civilizations thought and spoke about those thoughts. And so with that being said, history, my God, I, I really have no no real clue what the ancient Indians were actually saying about Om. And what I love about newer books and newer channeled books, whatever it might be, such as the law of one, is it gives us the question mark back. It's, it's not saying, well, we just need to rest and rely that rely on the fact that the ancient Indians wrote it the most correct and everyone else who ever writes about it later will be uh, less correct. I think that's the wrong way of going about it. That's a very skewed perspective of the reason that we're here. We're here to grow and learn and also ask relevant questions and even go back into how how important is it that we stick with the original text 
Or can we take a look at the original text, integrate it with what's coming out now, and then arrive at something that serves me or can serve humanity now? So like when I, whenever I get like lost, uh, some say paralysis by analysis, whenever I feel like, I, okay, too much information, not enough wisdom, I need to meditate on it, then really the, the point that I get to is, okay, at this point – I will never be given a task that is beyond my wheelhouse. I must already have the ability within to be able to tackle this task. So if I don't have the information or if I haven't read enough of the books to, to go into the historical or the empirical evidence of it, then the answer must be in my heart in learning how to use what I do know to serve people, serve others by serving, um, by growing and learning and opening my heart. But it's kind of one of these things, you know, I had people trying to, very eloquent people trying to explain to me the, the flat earth theory. And I'm like, listen, I love you. And I love, you know, I love the fact that, that we're having this conversation and I will stay open to whatever you're saying, but you haven't, usually I start with my very first question you know, if we have to talk about this for a long period of time, my very first question is, how will me changing this idea of, of the shape of the earth actually serve humanity better? How will I end up being able to serve humanity better thinking that the earth is your shape rather than the shape that I originally thought it was? Because for me, I don't care. I actually think it's a hologram, you know, more well, that, than any. That's, that's coming up next. So let's <laughs> let's go to that. Um, no, Dive in. I don't want to cut you off at all. I, I got, you know, I'm, I'm, having, that was pretty much it. I'm having to bite my tongue because there's a hundred areas as you're talking, I'd like to interject, but I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to take away from the opportunity for everybody to hear what, what you have to say. Cause really I wanted to, I wanted to dive into Ben Stewart today, but you know, I, I research and meditate all these things deeply and my, like Ohm is an example I have these questions, so I just go sit and chant or and see what happens. And, you know, fortunately for me, I'm clairvoyant, so I get a lot of very crystal clear visions as I'm doing these things and, and see movies, and I ask my soul to guide me. You know, I I just say, I don't know. I, I need my soul to guide me, and, and I believe the soul is God within, since only God can create consciousness and can provide us self-awareness that whenever we don't have the answer to a question, then we, we have, we have an opportunity to ask the part of us that is inherently whole and is God itself. I also tell my students, if you can ask the question, you already have access to the answer. And the analogy I give is if you're sitting next to a fence that has a crack in it and you happen to look over there and see what looks like the tail of an animal, well, you can sit there and guess all you want. Or you can walk over and grab the tail and pull on it and see what the, what comes out. And, mm -hmm. and so to me, a question is a tail and you got to keep pulling on it until you see the body and the head and, and, and then you can somehow make meaning of it. But most people are too lazy. You know, uh, David Bohm said, real thinking is challenging. That's why most people just rearrange their prejudices. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I I devoted myself to honest, deep thinking and and looking at the problems of life and looking at the problems of religion and science so that I can 
try to make meaning of them if if not only for myself but to share ways of perceiving and techniques for thinking and 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 diving deeper and one of the things i also deal with a lot and i know you do too is if you study any topic for any length of time you will come to the conclusion that experts of equal caliber are on either side of the fence diametrically opposed to each other and I get students and people calling me from all over the world and reaching out to me by email going, what do you do? You know, there's such total disagreement on this food or butter or saturated fat or gluten. I say that is your soul inviting you to the next level of your spiritual development. In Steiner's model, the intellectual soul, which we begin getting programmed with when we start learning language, matures into what he calls the awareness soul. And the awareness soul begins to emerge when we start honestly questioning our own beliefs and questioning what other people tell us, not just to be a pain in the ass, but to truly know. So I tell people, whenever you're at a juxtaposition where you can't make a decision because you can't rely on the experts, that's your soul inviting you to an honest exploration of your own because one man's medicine is another man's poison and one man's uh, saving grace is another man's uh, sin, so to speak. And we're all very, very unique individuals, even though there's many commonalities, our life experience and what we're here to do is unique. And one of the things I've learned about God is God is a novelty generator. There, There are never going to be two people with the same fingerprints on this planet Ever And there will never be the same fingerprints again. So each one of us is a one-time opportunity to experience life and to see life and love and everything that is from that unique perspective that therefore makes us, in my opinion, a node of perception in God's awareness as to what is possible. So... Some scientists like Paul Davies propose a holographic universe. Others, such as string theory proponents, suggest that we may be living in one of potentially many universes. From my studies of shamanism, it seems that shaman were certainly working with either different vibrational domains or realities that interpenetrated their own. In your opinion, are we in a multiverse? And if science does indeed verify this, what do you feel the impact would be on how we view life, mind, spirituality, religion, and how we ultimately are related to each other? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, You know, I hadn't read uh, Paul Davies' uh, explanation of the holographic universe, but I did read a book called The Holographic Universe by, I think it was Michael Talbot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had read on string theory uh, quite a bit. And I too found that, you know, when shamans, you know, at least the myth of shamans is them stepping between the worlds, like bringing useful information back to this world from the other world. And that could very much so be a different vibrational domain, as you put it, um, you know, another dimension of reality. And so without having to go into the nitty gritty on like how, you know, how could that physically work that there's other realities, definitely dive into string theory if you want to know more on that. Um, But I would absolutely say that our reality is far more information-based than we realize. And I've, I've personally, whether you want to take it from me or not, I've personally experienced that the moments in which I surrender 
uh, a certain perspective, um, like put it down and realize that, wow, that, that was just the way that I was looking at it then life actually does change. It changes the way that it's, uh, it looks, feels, uh, food tastes different, experiences taste, uh, seem different, um, relationships start to augment, even without saying anything. Um, everything starts to augment itself based upon me putting down a perspective and a routine behavior of thought. So, you know, when looking at shamanism, it doesn't have to be a plant medicine because sometimes they would just tremor and shake or chant or go while without food or water or go to physical extremes or self-flagellate, do all these types of things using the breath, um, you know, to hyperventilate in some ways to basically what we would call downregulate the default mode network. Right. And if you take a look at plant medicines, what even science is showing now is that like we are typically in this thing called the default mode network, which is a series of different brain hubs that are constantly communicating with one another, uh, using a tremendous amount of energy. And it's usually when we are ruminating about what that person thinks of us or how this conversation is going to go or just our day-to-day thought processes and we're in this default mode network. And so several things, including plant medicines, breath workshops, um, sports at times, getting into the flow state, it downregulates the, the, the default mode network and our, in a sense, our neurology begins communicating differently. And what I believe that means for our experience is that when our neurology communicates differently, it puts us into a different neurochemical state. And when we are in a different neurochemical state, our entire physiology changes because these chemicals, they change the hormonal balance of the body. When that happens, the nervous system changes. Uh, when the nervous system changes, our fascia and all of our connective tissue, it seems to either relax itself or contract. So there's this expansion or contraction. And, um, and I think this also explains many of people feeling like they don't know how to sit or be in their own skin when, when they're in the peak of a psychedelic experience because they're, they're loosening up from their original contraction, which is basically just pulling yourself into a form, the way your posture speaks itself into existence by holding on to experience in diff different areas of the body. You start to relax that into an expansion, and then it can be kind of like nauseating. If you've ever seen, um, man, what was uh, that movie, um, The Watchmen, where there's this um, – the only one with actual real superpowers was this blue guy who um, basically could transport you. But if he, if he transports somebody from one place to another, you get really nauseous and you're, you're very disoriented because we are oriented to a certain time and space. And when that is upended by somebody transporting us or a psychedelic, in a sense, transporting us out of this vibrational domain – then that's where the physical experiences come in. It could be nausea. It could be disorientation of like what we're seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, whatever. And in that respect, this is where I believe the shaman was flying 
you know, or you hear about witches flying on broomsticks after ingesting something or a shaman walking between the worlds after ingesting something. So I really do believe that, you know, when you, and this happens with meditation, you hear people leaving their body in meditation by dissociating from the physical and the etheric body. And that allows the astral and the mental body to, in a sense, separate itself connected by some kind of silver cord. So in that respect, all of these words, just words by different people explaining experiences, you can't, uh, eventually, you know, it might sound crazy to some people, but when you look back into the history books and you look back into people's accounts, there's more accounts of this than almost anything else. So we really have to start taking a look at how little modern science really has reality figured out and when they are telling us, oh, this is the way the world works, are we believing it into existence? And then when we take a, a psychedelic or something like that, it's breaking up that belief or that thought form so we can leave the body, enter a different vibrational domain. I personally absolutely be, uh, believe so. I believe that a lot of the um, eternal principles of nature uh, that that science tries to say, like the the constant of um, light. of gravity or the speed of light and stuff like that. You mentioned Rupert Sheldrake. He started tearing that uh, those theories down and showing that really even that is not proven. It's just bad science to base everything else off of that and say, well. We can move forward from here because this is proven. It's a done deal. And then it's circular logic like, oh, so modern human is only 200,000 years old and we, you know, like yada, yada. But if we find like in the book Forbidden Archaeology that there are some modern human fossils that seem to date to two two and a half million years ago, then it's like, oh, well, that that must be a mistake because modern human – only came about 200,000 years ago. Therefore, if anything, you know, uh, seems to prove it otherwise or fly in the face of it, then there was a mistake in the scientific experiment because modern human is only 200,000 years old. So there's that circular logic where it's like you're basing reality on something that's not proven and then just walking away from it, assuming that it's solid. And then everything else starts looking differently because you moved forward from that foundation. So what I'm saying here is that I believe that our beliefs about what is real and factual in the universe is more so just that. It's just a belief. And when we start being able to question it, then bam, then we can start getting to the real magic that we have. We, We are all magicians and we all have the ability to manifest reality in a way that is beyond our wildest imagination, but it will never come about if we do not start questioning our core beliefs. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm skipping a bunch of questions that I had just because I know you have a limited amount of time and I, it is my dream to have many interviews with Ben Stewart. So I'll keep track of the questions, but there's two questions I want to ask you before you got to run to your beautiful wife and your new twin boys. Mm-hmm. Um, I once read a, a definition of mythology that I thought was just mind blowing. It said, myth is something that never happened, but is happening all the time. So my question has been, what do you feel it is that's never happened but is happening all the time? Oh, man. Dude, such a good question. I love these questions, man. Um, Because you're really – 
you're really diving into um, you're diving far beneath the the superficial layers that a lot of interviews I'm on typically beg to stay on. Um, man, myth. I've always thought this that a lot of what is myth. I don't know if it was written. You know, I was born in 1983. These books could have been written in 1981, for all I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I always, you know, rely on that. You know, I don't really know. These are just words coming out of people, and they're written on paper. And I, I will, for the most part, never meet any of these people, like Joseph Campbell and uh, many of these people that I consider my teachers as well. So myth is something that has never happened. I always thought that myth was a self-fulfilling prophecy. It was written up like to make it seem like it's the history of humanity when it's really the future of humanity. You know, so you, you look at the Vedas and you see all this high advanced technology. I don't deny that we may have been very, we may have had humans that are very advanced on this planet, maybe far more advanced than ourselves. But I also take a look at the myths that are out there and I start seeing that, you know, replete throughout all the myths, Native American myths, South American oral traditions, African, European, Asian, Indian, Russian, as far across the globe as you go, all the way down into Australia and the Aboriginal Dreamtime myths and things along those lines. When I, when I really study it, I start realizing that, wow, this actually could be more of a self-fulfilling prophecy than anything. It's there as words and words have power. And the more we read it and say, oh, look, here's this 3,000, 5,000 year old script coming out of yada, yada. And millions and millions of people are reading it and being like, oh, this is what the ancients left behind for us as where we came from. Perhaps all the myth was put there in order to inform us on how to move forward in the future or in order, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, so you see in the ancient Vedas, you see that there may be high advanced technologies, these ancient wars with advanced weaponry used amongst themselves, some of it looking like it was uh, maybe even nuclear and, um, and uh, atomic in nature, yes. and even uh, you know, uh, I I am become death is, uh, Oppenheimer. is uh, Oppenheimer. You know, he was a big student of the Vedas. Yeah. So, in that respect, I guess, like to answer your question, man, that's a really good question. Um, myth never happened. Well, you know what? We were never there. So, uh, me personally, I wasn't there when that was written. I have really very little other than my own intuition to go off of on whether any of that really happened or not. But myth is, you're right, it is something that is happening all the time. Because if you think about it, everything from, you know, half the stuff you'll read in scientific journals uh, to half the books that are out there, most people, they're just nodding their head when they see something that looks like science. They're like, oh, that must be science. That must be fact. So I'm, I have to believe it because, you know, I'm a, I'm a practical, very pragmatic human being. So I have to believe that this scientist did their homework and what he or she is saying is absolutely correct. So I need to live my life by that. Or I have to so, pass a test so I can get right. my degree and go out and pretend that I'm exactly how they want me to be. 
Exactly. And and this isn't to just tear down everything and all science is crap and no, no it's no, it's no. not that. But it's, you know, and and I and I know you feel that as well cuz we've had this conversation. Yeah. There's a balance behind it. That's where it's skepticism matched with open-mindedness. You know, the more that we allow for those two seeming opposites to come together and both to have a say in how we formulate our thoughts and how we, you know, in a sense, inform our actions moving forward. So everything I've ever written, here's, he, long story short, here's how I move forward when it comes to that. You know, everything I've ever read about history or science or religion or philosophy or art that I haven't created myself or experiences that I haven't had directly myself, they are just the words of men. And I have to use my heart. I have to use my intuition to, to really bring it together and say, what, where is the lesson for me? Yes. You know, I'm not just going to take it verbatim. Where is the lesson for me? So in a sense, I have to enter into it creatively. I have to, in a sense, extrapolate it from the bare bones of the words that it is and turn it into, okay, does this, you know, does this hit me in a, in a good way or does this not resonate at all? Does, you know, even if it doesn't resonate, does that mean it's wrong or does that mean I have some kind of resistance towards it? There's all these other questions that come, come to be when I take a look at the writings of other people that I've never met, never will about times that I haven't lived in this lifetime and can only tap into in my own experience anyway. So with that being said, I agree with that statement. Myth, it doesn't matter whether it ever happened or not. The way myth comes to me is through a book right now. So my experience is not of what happened in the past, but of a book sitting in front of me that somebody else wrote. So with that being said, I can always and only ever rely upon my own intuition uh, understanding that I have been given the tools to move forward in my life the best way that I can. And if I can't, if I don't have the information, if I don't have the tools, then it wasn't meant for me to do anyway. So I'll never have to shame or guilt myself thinking that I'm not good enough. I have the tools that I have and I always learn, I always research, I always meditate so I can keep sharpening those blades of my intuition and opening my heart. But in that respect, I never have to worry if somebody is going off, hey, listen, I read all of the Vedas and this is why you're wrong, Ben. Then I would just say, thank you very much for that perspective. And that's a great perspective, but I also have my own perspective and that's what I use you know, my own intuition from my heart that, you know, that is my path and my path alone. And it doesn't matter whether you're more eloquent than me or have more research under your belt. It doesn't matter because my intuition is right for me. Your research is right for you. Yeah. So that's how I move forward in my life because it can be overwhelming the amount of information that is out there. Well, you know, when I look at that, I, I, I've meditated on it and I have many ways of tackling that little riddle. But uh, a simple one is when it says myth is something that never happened. Well, like you said, myths are all stories that were written about the experiences that human beings had in the past, but the past is dead. And when it says mm. it's happening all the time, that's because we're always in the present and the past is a record of our habits. So the fact that when we look back 
at our habits as they're recorded in myth, our habit of warring, our habit of taking things that don't belong to us, our habit of messing with the gods or powers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are cosmic habits. This goes right hand in hand with the morphogenic field, which Rupert Sheldrake says, you know, is basically Mm -hmm. a collection of universal habits, such as Alan Watts says the universe is a peopling universe. In other words, it has a habit of making people to look at itself. So what's never happened is what's not here, but what's happening all the time is the present. And by becoming more conscious, we can look at the myths and the habits that produced outcomes and decide, do we want to recapitulate that habit or do we want to create something novel that works better for us either individually or collectively in the moment? Mm-hmm. I know you don't. Yeah, man. Sorry. I know you don't have a lot of time. So uh, I've got two questions left for you. One of, of all the spiritual practices that you've come across and used and know of, if you could share one or two or three that, that almost anyone listening could use without a lot of training to explore themselves, their mind, their heart, their soul and life more fully, what would you share? And then if you could finish with where people can find more about you, that'd be lovely. For sure, man. Absolutely. I I would say the, probably the two things that I would suggest for people the most is some kind of meditative ritual and that and the, the way that i say that is not just meditation but understanding that for me what meditation is is you're going into a different experience you're deliberately going into a different kind of experience to listen to really really listen now you can bring intention in there so that's kind of speaking but really you're there to simply stand side by side with the void you know, and, and the void being like the, the, the great mystery, the great, you know, like what great spirit really is, the great mystery that is there. So like a meditative ritual is by understanding that to step into that moment. It's not just by whatever you're doing, just sit down, cross your legs, close your eyes, shut up, and there you're meditating. But stepping into the process ritually. So how, what are you going to eat? How much are you going to eat before you sit down and meditate? What are your types of thoughts? Are you going to have tea? What kind of plant are you drinking if you're having tea? Uh, how is that going to inform or influence your meditation? So really just by bringing more awareness, not just to your meditation. And I, I always like meditating is just follow the breath. Every time your mind wanders, don't punish it. Don't tell it to shut up. Just go, oh, that's interesting, and bring it right back to the breath. That's probably one of the simplest ways to go into meditation and to get beyond the thinking mind. But the reason why I added a meditative ritual is because to bring awareness into the things that we do just prior and just following meditation is really important. And if you hear about like fasting, a lot of people say when you fast, it's really important what you, how you step down into the fast, like what are you eating right beforehand? And when you come off the fast, what are you introducing directly after a fast? Because those are very sensitive moments and your body is going to be very sensitive to that food. Well, the same thing with meditation. How are you, you're fasting from thoughts. You're fasting from, you know, your 
typical day-to-day consciousness. So how are you stepping into it and how are you stepping out of it? How, what is your movement like? What are your thoughts like? What are, what are you consuming and ingesting? And where are you? Um, all those types of things. So really, I can't really give too much advice other than try and make it something very uh, casual and you can learn, you know, try different things each time leading into the meditation and leading out of it. But once you get into the meditation, sit with a straight back, try and correct your posture and then relax breathe and follow the breath and see where that takes you and stop trying to control where it takes you. Just let the breath take you. Understand that you, your breathing happens no matter you, uh, whether you like it or not. So let it take you. There's an intelligence to your breath. Your breath is connected to your body. Your body has information and trauma stored within it and your breath will take you into those places. So stop trying to control it because it will probably take you into some places that you might want to ignore. Go there, be bold, go there. So that's one. The second one is really, really, really try and bring your meditation into the mundane. So instead of, you know, having this practice where you sit down and you in a sense, tune out from the temporal phenomenal world, uh, bring your meditation, your mindfulness and your awareness into your mundane world, washing the dishes, walking across the ground. I like walking in nature barefoot because you really have to listen with your feet. You have to, you know, feel how your foot is striking the ground and your feet are, is listening. Are you stepping on something spiky? Your feet are extremely sensitive. So, In that, being in your body, using movement and your mundane activities throughout the day, whether it's bending over to pick up a pencil, how well are you going to bend over and pick up that pencil? So what I'm saying is enrich your mundane experiences of life by bringing more awareness into them. That's a spiritual practice. And sharpen the blade of meditation that is seated, eyes closed, going into your own inner experience and allowing for your breath to guide where that experience will take you. Those are the two real tips that I would have to leave the audience with. And um, and I guess to, to answer the final part of it, you know, where can people find more of what I'm doing? I'm working on my website as it is right now, so it's not up, but that's benjosephstewart.com. Should be up soon. Um, and with that, just go to YouTube and, and type in, uh, you know, Ben Stewart, ben Stewart. Kymatica. Yeah. yeah. You know, just, just type that in. You, you'll find some other Ben Stewart's, but you'll probably soon figure out which one I am. Um, and go to Gaia. And if you want to check out Psychedelica, please do. Uh, which is, it's really good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. If you want to check that out, go to Gaia.com backslash Psychedelica. Now, Gaia is G A I A dot com slash Psychedelica, P-S-Y-C-H-E-D-E-L-I-C-A, Psychedelica, and Gaia.com backslash Psychedelica. You can check out, uh, that's my latest work. And for any questions, I love it when people get in touch with me. They, you know, like usually there's always very good connections that come out of uh, these things. Hit me up at talismanicidols at gmail.com and I'll spell that out. T A L I S. M-A-N-I-C-I-D-O-L-S at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to hear from any of your audience members. Hey, uh, I know you really got to go, but I have to do this to you. If you knew you were going <laughs> to die tomorrow, 
what message would you want to share with humanity at this time? And since I know you're short for time, I know it'll be a sage answer. (laughs) If I knew I was going to die tomorrow, the message I would have for people today is, is probably the simplest and might even be the most trite thing. Um, but truly be good to one another and, Always reconsider what you think that means to be good to one another. And the reason I say that is because time really is limited on this planet. And really, you know, whether I think I have all the the nuances and the most mind-blowing things figured out or not, the one thing at the end of the day when I'm laying my head down, the only thing, which I'm sure is the same feeling as laying my head down on my deathbed, the only thing that comes back to my mind was, was I good to people? And good doesn't mean that I wasn't challenging them or confronting them. It simply means what is truly good for people. And the more we meditate on that, you'll realize it's what's good for others is good for us, is good for the planet, is good for God. It's, and it's truly something that is a, is a lifetime of evolution that gets us to understanding how to be good to one another. And that happens by opening the heart. So be good to one another and really be open-minded towards how you can be good to others because at the end of the day, you're not going to wish that you read one more book or saw one more documentary. Or or worked harder or made more money. Exactly. You're going to wish that you loved unconditionally. Well, you know, your message is right parallel with one of my favorite teachers in the whole world, Houston Smith, who right close to the end of his life, somebody asked him if he had a message for humanity now that he was, you know, obviously close to the end of his life. And he said, yes, be a little kinder, be a little kinder Uh, to yourself, be kinder to each other, be kinder to all living beings. And so you travel in great company, buddy. It's been absolutely a pleasure. I you know, selfishly organized a podcast with you just so I could hang out with you for a couple hours and I knew you'd schedule it and I kind of cornered you that way. So <laughs> love it. thank you for sharing with me and let's do this again as soon as we can because I can put together another long list of topics for us to explore. And, you know, there was many things I would love to have interjected, but I wanted to make sure you got to share your perspective. But there's lots I want to dialogue with you on in the future because I, I absolutely love your way of relating with yourself, with life, with great spirit. And I, I think that, you know, you, you have a beautiful balance of skepticism and openness and willingness to be present, uh, but also to be honest with yourself about what's true for you. And the realization that what's true for you may not be true for everybody else. And and really, I think that was one of the key messages you shared today was we all are on our own journey. And though we can learn from each other and we can read other people's books, it's ultimately our journey. And we have to honor that within ourselves or we're, we're really just lost or, or a photocopy machine living someone else's life and ideas. Man, great, great summation. Uh, and thank you for putting it so, so beautifully. And I just have to honor you, Paul, dude. I've been, like I said earlier, I've been onto your work for quite some time. And the more we speak, uh, the more I just acknowledge that, you know, the, uh, I don't always, or I don't often come across people that are doing the work for such a reason that I, that I so admire. It's, it's straight from the heart. Um, what you're doing, 
all the work that you're doing. I'm so glad you have a podcast now. Uh, I'm, I'm very much in line with the work that you got do. And I very much so support it because I know that we, we need more people like yourself. We need, um, far more of it. And thank you so much for giving the platform for me to be able to be here and share some of my wisdom. Well, I'm, I'm grateful. And that's why I started the Czech Institute in 1995. And, uh, I must say that it gives me great joy to see the Czech professionals out in the world, several of which I've got interviews with that either have come out or are coming out. And uh, I'm excited one day when I have an instructor's meeting up here, I'm going to get a hold of you and invite you over to meet these amazing, amazing people that it's uh, taken me a long time to find and to cultivate and work with. But God has blessed the Institute with 13 absolutely amazingly beautiful instructors that travel the world teaching people how to ask good questions and be honest with themselves. I love it. And I would be absolutely open for that. So you let me know when. I will, buddy. I love you. Send my love to Barbara and give my love to your children. And uh, I'm excited for our next interview already. (laughs) Me too, man. Much love to you. Thank you so much again. And I can't wait to talk again. Hey, big hug. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Ben Joseph Stewart. To watch Ben's series on Gaia TV, visit Gaia.com forward slash psychedelica. You can find Ben on Facebook at ben.stewart.12177 or email him directly talismanicidols at gmail.com Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on YouTube, search for Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at www.paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at www.checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.